Hello. On behalf of the Business and Community Alliance of Colorado College, I'd like to thank you for coming here tonight. Um, tonight's event is sponsored by the Business and Community Alliance, which is a group of 25 business and community leaders in the business and nonprofit sector who serve as ambassadors for Colorado College and occasionally sponsor public events. Um, as you probably know, there are public events and lectures that are free to the public here almost every night of the week, but this particular one is, is sponsored by the BNCA, and we're very happy to have you here. Um, tonight's topic is probably one of the more divisive and emotional in American politics and culture today, and it's probably one of the few areas where you can actually have a disagreement with yourself, um, which makes it unique, because usually we just disagree with one another, uh, rather than disagreeing with oneself, but even I find myself having arguments with myself on this topic and going round and round and trying not to get abusive about it, but still I disagree with myself. Um, it's obviously very prominent in the news. Um, nationally, it's getting a lot of attention. Um, this was a very thoughtful article. I, I hope a lot of you saw that. But as you know, also locally, um, the topic of U.S. and Mexico immigration and reform legislation ideas is very much in the forefront of the local scene. And we've seen a lot in the Independent and in the Gazette about things happening right here in town and in our state. Um, so it's very topical. It affects all of us in different ways. And um, I think it's one of those topics that the more that you learn about it, the more complex it becomes rather than the simpler. And I think that tonight's lecture will be very helpful for us in grasping some of that complexity from people who have seen it firsthand and really lived it. So without any further ado, I would like to welcome our two guest speakers tonight. The first is Eric Popkin, who is Associate Professor of Sociology here at Colorado College. He's been here since 2001 teaching sociology classes. Um, Eric's classes are very popular with the students and very well known. Um, he has a class that is informally known as the Borders class that goes on the half block and takes students to the U.S.-Mexico border. And I've heard anecdotally that many students who take this class are never the same again. Uh, that Frequently they think they know exactly where they stand on this issue until they take the class. And then they see both sides in much more depth and reality and humanity than they ever thought possible. <coughs> Excuse me. One of those students was Hector Suarez, um, and I should also mention, though, that Eric is also the director of the Partnership for Civic Engagement here at Colorado College, which is a fantastic program that gets the students and the community more aligned and does active service and internships and fellowships in the community. Um, I had plenty of breath at my last meeting, a little too much breath, so I apologize for the coughing. Um, one of those students that was very affected by the Borders class was Hector Suarez, who graduated in 2004. Um, after graduation, Hector went down to the U.S.-Mexico border and worked with various community organizations and also in Los Angeles before returning to Colorado Springs. And he is now the program coordinator of the Pikes Peak Immigrant and Refugee Collaborative. So both of these gentlemen have a lot of firsthand experience with this topic and a lot of knowledge to share. So at this point, I'd like to welcome them, and thank you very much again. Good evening. Thank you for coming. First thing I should say is this is going to take a little while. Um, as we started to put this together, um, everything that was just mentioned is absolutely true. The complexity of the issue 
led us to keep saying, well, if we raise that issue, it's going to require a discussion about this, which is going to require another discussion. Um, immigration has emerged as a top legislative policy issue here in Colorado and one of the most important in the United States today. Now, when we hear the word migration or immigrant, usually the first thing that pops in our mind due to the media portrayal of the issue is illegal. And those advocating restrictionist immigration policies contend a number of things. They argue, for one, that immigrants come and take our jobs, that there's a high degree of job competition. There's a lot of literature on alleged job competition between Latino immigrants and African Americans, for instance. Two, that immigrants come primarily to take advantage of social services. Three, that there are a disproportionate number of alien criminals as compared to natives, that the crime problem has increased due to immigrants coming. Four, particularly in a post-9-11 world, national security concerns have led to a major concern about porous border with Mexico, which allegedly will lead to the entry of terrorists. With the lack of interior enforcement of immigrants within the borders of the United States, we can expect new terrorist cells in urban areas. Fifth, there's a pretty profound, particularly in this state, environmental argument concerning overpopulation, depletion of resources, urban sprawl, etc., as a result of the presence of immigrants. And lastly, six, what I would call the cultural argument, Samuel Huntington being the most noted author on this point, Mexican immigration or migration threatens American culture, that we're becoming a bilingual, bicultural society, and that threatens our nation. Now, tonight, we want to counter some of this negative rhetoric, and we will examine the immigration process in a more holistic way. We don't have the time to go point by point on each of these arguments, but as you'll see, we'll touch a good number of them. We will argue that current immigration policy is a failure as it ignores the need for immigrant labor in the U.S., and our role in promoting the conditions that make migrants leave their countries of origin. We will also argue that the current strategy promotes undocumented or so-called illegal migration rather than legal migration. We examine immigration by looking at the causes of migration, the immigrant role in the U.S. economy, the contributions immigrants make to U.S. society, we have an assessment of border enforcement policies and proposed state and national immigration policies. Okay, we'll go to the next one. Um, one reason it's such a hot-button issue are the absolute numbers of foreigners that are in the United States. You can see on the slide here our current population, 12% currently, or 35 million of that population are foreign-born. The undocumented population is at 10.4 million. Some estimates go as high as 11 million compared to 5 million in 1992. It's important to note that about 40% of undocumented immigrants have overstayed visas. So close to half came here legally and overstayed their visas, the others being so-called border crossers. 
go to the next one. Immigration grew sharply during the economic boom of the 90s and then declined as the economy um, did change after 2001. Most people think that the levels have pretty much continued unabated since the mid-90s, and that's just not true. It is true that in 2004, immigration levels did bounce back and exceeded 1.2 million documented and undocumented immigrants. This number is comparable with those of the mid-90s, but still significantly lower than the peak levels in 1999 and 2000. Our official count of foreign-born immigrants in Colorado 430-some thousand, 10% of the population of the state of 4.6 million. Our official count of foreign-born immigrants living in Colorado in 1990, 142,000, 4.3% of the 90 population. So we have an increase in foreign-born immigrants living in Colorado, which is very huge, 205%. This creates some of the buzz about the issue. We were considered and are considered one of what's called the new growth states for immigrants in the United States, one of about 10, many in the southeast part of the country. We had a huge economic boom in the 90s in construction, particularly, among other things, on the front range, leading to part of this picture. Undocumented immigrants, according to the estimates that we have within Colorado, 200 to 250,000. It's important to put this historically, these numbers. By that I mean, if you look at the previous era of very high immigration in the early 20th century, you realize the population of immigrants doubled from 13% to 26% um, during that time period, 10-year span. So 26% of the total population. It's currently at 12%. Granted, absolute numbers mean a lot more people. But it is important to put it in historical perspective on the percentage of foreigners within the US. Invasion? Go on. I think that immigration levels are tied to the state of the economy. When you notice an expansion of the economy, you notice the higher immigrant numbers. It tends to decline historically as the economy dips for one reason or another. Okay, so why do people come to the United States? Now, most presentations on this issue kind of don't talk about this that much. And one of my colleagues, friends here, thinks I shouldn't spend too much time on this, but I disagree. I'm going to, because I think if you understand why people come to some extent, it makes more sense, it, the, the entire complexity of the issue makes more sense. It becomes more obvious as to some of the flaws inherent within our current immigration policy. Migration is a massive phenomenon tied to the current era of globalization. Now, what do we mean, go to the next slide, by globalization? Um, since, the post, since the 1970s, we've noticed the integration of economic production on a global scale. We've noticed the rise of prominence of transnational corporations a breakdown of barriers to trade, an increase in outsourcing, taking advantage of lower labor costs abroad. Economic integration schemes have proliferated, whether that's the European Union or the North American Free Trade Alliance or Agreement, NAFTA. Um, 
based on, all of these facets are based on Ricardo's notion of comparative advantage, that countries should specialize in those industries that they have a natural advantage in, that this leads theoretically to benefits for consumers by lowering the cost of any product because it will be produced in the place in which it should be produced. It increases efficiency because of this emphasis on production tied to natural attributes. For some developing countries, the result of this, however, is that cheap labor becomes that attribute. And this is the case to some extent, though it's changing a bit, in Mexico. And what we've noticed is a dramatic proliferation of jobs in Mexico since NAFTA was agreed upon in 1994. But these are jobs that don't pay a living wage. Um, they meet minimum wage requirements within Mexico, but those requirements are very low so as to tr attract that investment. And this is what often fuels uh, immigration. If we look at NAFTA specifically, the agreement opened the borders by eliminating tariffs and allowing for the free flow of capital. It coincided with a loss of the so-called safety net. Could give a whole lecture on that change of the Mexican Constitution, so-called Article 27, which got rid of credits and collective land titles and all of that, but I don't have time. It led to a proliferation of an export-oriented economy. And it's true, 500,000 new manufacturing jobs have been created within Mexico since NAFTA. But again, I want to bring the point about the wages that are being paid. When we take our border class down, we live in squatter communities, and these are the lucky workers because these are the workers in the maquilas or the plants that have been created in the border region through this U.S. investment that has expanded in the context of NAFTA. They don't have enough money to live in better conditions. Um, as subsidies have declined um, within Mexico through the barriers of trade um, opening up. It's, it's made Mexican agricultural production, particularly basic foodstuffs such as corn and coffee, vulnerable in the face of competition from a much greater, bigger market within the United States. So in a sense, they're competing with the United States. What are they competing against? They're competing against heavy subsidization of basic foodstuffs within the United States market, corn. And this has led to a dumping of corn produced in the United States onto Mexico, which has been historically a producer of corn and relying on it as a basic food product for their population. U.S. corn sector is the largest recipient of U.S. government subsidy payments, $10.1 billion in 2000, 10 times greater than the total Mexican agricultural budget. U.S.-based transnational corporations such as Cargill, to make this a little more insidious, both own the companies that dump the corn from the United States and that also import the corn for food processing within Mexico. In fact, it's three or four transnational corporations that are U.S.-based that own and control the transaction of corn across borders. Go to the next slide. We found this quote. Mexican farmers are not competing against U.S. farmers, but against U.S. taxpayers and the world's most powerful treasury, this in the form of subsidies. It's difficult to think of a starker illustration of unfair trade in practice. So what we have is unfair trade. It thwarts the ability of some third world countries 
to compete. It leads to massive displacement of small farmers. I just returned from the border area, and of the people I met in the border area coming to the United States, they were all from four or five departments within southern Mexico that produce corn and coffee, another commodity we could spend a lot of time talking about in which the global price has plummeted due to increased competition, due to strategies of the U.S. to promote non-traditional agricultural exports globally, another story. The logic of economic integration is that, on the one hand, you have the free flow of capital, but on the other hand, you restrict the movement of labor. And that is a contradiction. It has been addressed in the European Union to some extent within their integration scheme, but not in the United States NAFTA scheme. It has led to increased border enforcement, which we're going to talk about quite a bit. Go to the next slide. The same process that pushes migrants out within places such as Mexico pulls them into the U.S. It's the same process of economic restructuring that's occurring in the privatization of agriculture in the South is also occurring in a different way within the North. Since the late 70s, you've heard a lot about deindustrialization in the United States, the loss of high-paid full benefit jobs, manufacturing, a decrease in the percentage of workers that are part of unions, an increase in subcontracting of parts of the labor process to producers along a wider field, increase in what we call downgraded manufacturing or low-end assembly work, um, providing for specialized niche markets. Garment industry comes to mind as an example in Los Angeles. At the same time, you have an increase of both the high and low end of the service economy. So at the high end, you have finance, real estate, insurance, high-tech, research in an urban core. But you also have, once you bring all those people into these jobs in the urban core, you have a need for low-end services, restaurants, hotels, my favorite, dog walkers, dog groomers, etc. So you have increased downgraded manufacturing, increased low-end services. These are the jobs occupied by immigrant labor. Push them out, do a process of economic restructuring. It's the same process in restructuring towards an increased low-wage economy in the U.S. that pulls those same immigrants into our country. the importance of immigrant labor in the U.S. economy. Immigrant labor, labor is vital to certain sectors of the economy. Of the top 10 growth occupations projected in the next 10, between 2002 and 2012, eight require less than a bachelor's degree. These are the essential workers, the low-end workers I'm referring to. Between 2002 and 2012, there is expected job growth in professional and service sector. Both will increase so at both ends of the hourglass economy, by 20%. Six of the top 10 growth occupations require only short-term on-the-job training, retail, nursing aides, janitors, cleaners. Did you know, in, of undocumented in the U.S., one in, four farm, one in four farm workers are undocumented, one in six maids, one in seven construction workers, one in eight food preparers, 29% of all roofers and drywall installers, Anyone here ever do drywall? 27% of butchers and food processing workers. Go to the next one. Without non-citizen workers during the 1990s, there would have been a shortage of 500,000 workers in 13 occupational categories. 
even if all unemployed natives with recent experience in those categories had been reemployed. The categories, agriculture, maids, housekeepers, sewing machine operators, janitors, construction, packaging, etc. Lastly, for this point, the baby boomer generation and the presence of women in the workforce expanded the size of the workforce in past decades, but it's the retirement of baby boomers in the next five years and the low fertility rates mean that expansion of native-born workforce is unlikely within the next 20 to 30 years. Given that demographic reality, how will these jobs be filled in the future without migration? <clears throat> Thank you for coming, everyone. Um, I apologize. In the beginning, if I seem a little scattered, there was a lot of information that we tried to fit into um, the short presentation. Um, now that we've looked at some of the causes of immigration and explored the role that immigrants play in our economy, the question we have to ask now, which is a compelling question, is why are there so many undocumented immigrants in our country? That is pretty much the number one question fueling the immigration debate today. Um, in other words, what we ask is, why don't they just play by the rules? Um, often what I hear people say is, you know, things like, I'm not against immigration. I'm, ag I'm against illegal immigrants who disregard our laws. Or, for example, yes, we're all the children of immigrants, but my ancestors came here legally. Um, or my favorite, politicians who say, the problem is not immigration. The problem is this, quote, invasion by illegal aliens that's taking place in our country. Um, the underlying assumption here is that people come here illegally simply because they don't want to wait their turn in line. Uh, it's easier to cross the border illegally than to apply for a green card and wait your turn is the perception. However, the reality is that for most unskilled workers around the world, there simply is no alternative. If they want to come to the United States and work legally, uh, there really is no way to do it. Uh, next slide, please. Now, it would take a trained attorney a couple of hours to even scratch the surface um, about the intricacies of how immigration visas work um, and things like that. From what I understand, the only U.S. code that's more complicated than the immigration code is the tax code. Um, so I'll do what I can in two or three minutes. Um, currently, there are two major ways in which an unskilled worker can achieve legal status. One is through an employer and the other one is through family connections. The employment route is limited to people that are applying from outside the country or that entered the country legally and have maintained legal status since they've entered. So off the bat, this means that if you're currently in the country illegally, which 10 to 11 million people are, you're already barred from, from that route. And of course, there are caveats and you know, different categories and things like that, but for the most part, this is how it works. Um, of the 16 temporary work visas that exist, two are available for industries that require little or no formal training, which are the essential worker categories that Eric was talking about. Uh, the H-2A visa is restricted to agricultural workers, and that one doesn't have a numerical cap, but yet because of the past inefficiency in, in implementing that, there's currently a backlog of anywhere from five to 15 years 
depending on the country you're coming from. H-2B, which is the second visa and open to other uh, low-skilled jobs, is capped at 66000 per year. Um, however, there also exists a backlog of between 5 and 15 or even more years, uh, depending on the country that you're coming from. Um, one of the articles that we found uh, stated that only about 5,000 of these visas are actually giving out, given out every year. Um, and how that works, I honestly can't explain. If there are any immigration lawyers in the audience, um, you know, feel free to enlighten us. Uh, next slide. Uh, aside from the, the bar uh, for people seeking uh, employment-based visas, if they entered illegally, um, the family-related uh, visa has certain bars that were started in the year 1996. Um, one is if, uh, on criminal grounds. If you've ever been convicted of anything more than a felony, you're pretty much ineligible for the rest of your life unless you get some sort of waiver from a judge. On um, being on the U.S. without status... The way it works is if you, uh, the way you can apply is if you have a, a citizen parent, a sibling, a spouse, or a, a child over 21, they can vouch for you to, to bring you into the country. Um, again, you must have lawful permanent residence at the time. Uh, if you have been in the country for more than, I think the first one is, uh, 180 days. If you've been in the country for more than 180 days, the bars don't apply until you leave the country and come back. So if you leave the country, you're automatically barred for three years. Now the way you have to apply through your family to get these visas are to leave the country, go to a U.S. consulate back in your home country, and apply there. So what often happens is someone will marry an American citizen, want to uh, obtain their legal status, and when they leave the country to apply, automatically the three-year uh, bar kicks in. Or if you've been in the country for more than one year, the 10-year bar kicks in. Uh, and then if you've been in the country for more than one year and you've exited and entered even once, there's a permanent bar. Um, the only way to get around these bars is to obtain a waiver, a pardon from a judge, um, which kind of reflects the overall uh, political situation in the United States. A couple of years ago, almost 80% of waivers were being granted. Right now, actually, ever since 9-11, uh, it's been closer to 10%. Um, so most immigration lawyers that we've been talking to uh, advise their clients to just not even risk it right now, uh, to not apply because chances are they're going to get denied the waiver and they're going to be barred either permanently or at least for 10 years. Um, the way the the waivers work is that you have to prove extreme hardship to the U.S. citizen or legal resident in the process. So if, uh, you know, I'm trying to apply through my wife, I would have to prove extreme hardship for her. Or if it's for my, ch uh, my child, through my, my adult child, it would have to be extreme hardship for him. Um, and again, a lot of that is just based on the discretion of, of the judge. And right now is not a very viable way of entering. Add to that the, the backlogs also. Um, and depending on the, what country you're from, if you're from Mexico and you're trying to immigrate an immediate relative, the wait currently is about 8 to 11 years. So picture trying to immigrate your wife or your husband or your child, um, and, you know, maybe a decade from now uh, it might happen. Um, next slide, please. The current immigration system 
is completely unresponsive to the supply and demand for labor, which, as we have seen, is the major driving force behind immigration in general. Um, the caps are set arbitrarily and have been the same way for a number of years. Um, and so this is a quote that I found from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Due to economically unjustifiable low quota numbers, if an employer seeks to permanently fill an essential worker position, he or she is often faced with a five to 10 year waiting period, not a practical or reasonable solution for any employer. Um, one can imagine trying to you know, find your next you know, bus boy or something and submitting an application and waiting for 10 years. You know, it's not likely. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so sticking with the, the economic factor, why should the business community in particular be interested in comprehensive immigration reform? Well, one is the stabilization of the current workforce. As we have seen, flows depend on whether the economy is expanding or contracting at the time. And with the projections that we have for um, the expansion of, the, of uh, the essential worker categories within the next decade, um, it's important that we have a, a stable workforce that can fill those jobs. Um, another part is, is the, the growth. As, as Eric pointed out, during the 1990s, a lot of the growth was due in part to the presence of immigrant workers that were able to fill essential job categories. And if we want to continue on that trajectory, um, the, we need the workers is basically what it comes down to. Also, something that a lot of people don't know is that a surprising number of immigrants are actually business owners and that economic activity from immigrants contributes to an overall expansion of the economy, which in the end benefits everyone. Um, and finally, fixing a broken system. Uh, the, the current way right now in which people can come here to fill these jobs is simply unrealistic. And with a lot of the current legislation being proposed right now, a lot of the burden for basically enforcing immigration laws is going to be placed in, in the, the hands of business owners, of employers. Um, right now, employers are responsible for asking for documents uh, of any worker that they hire, but they're not responsible for checking the, you know, the validity of those documents or anything like that. And in a lot of sectors, sectors of the economy, it's pretty well known that you know, a high percentage of your workers are probably undocumented, but you know, as an employer, it's not your job to you know, delve into whether they're uh, legal documents or not. If it becomes that way, employers will have to take on those costs and on any repercussions that come from failing to uh, achieve those, that uh, objective of not hiring any uh, undocumented worker. So as a general good business strategy, it makes sense to have an immigration policy that is more closely tied to the economy. Uh, next slide. Now, apart from understanding the, the root causes of immigration um, and the role that immigrants are playing in our economy, we have to acknowledge that obviously there are costs. Um, there are, uh, next slide, please. Most of the cost that comes directly from the immigration phenomenon right now is, is borne by border counties specifically, um, those counties and states that are adjacent to the border. And most of that, of that uh, cost comes from arresting and detaining undocumented uh, immigrants and the health care that has to be provided. Uh, border counties are among the counties in the nation that are highest in the number of uninsured patients. Um, and for example, in places like Arizona, where every year you know, thousands of people uh, 
get sick or, or get hurt trying to cross the desert, those hospitals there are seeing the, the, the cost of treating those, those uh, people. And the way it's supposed to work is that the federal government reimburses localities for carrying out basically what are federal laws. Um, if you're detaining a migrant, you know, that's, it's not a state law that says you have to detain them. It's a federal law you're following. And so therefore, uh, technically, you're supposed to get refunded by the federal government. The way it works, though, is actually a little different. A study by the University of Texas at El Paso uh, found that counties along the U.S.-Mexico border have been left with most of the, of the costs for border security. Um, for example, the Department of, Justice, Department of Justice records show that Arizona's four border counties asked the federal government in 2000 for a reimbursement of $23.2 million for the cost they incurred uh, during the year in, in arresting, treating, etc., uh, undocumented immigrants. What they were actually reimbursed by the federal government was $730,000. Um, in California, San Diego County spends annually an average of $50 million a year um, to arrest, jail, prosecute, and defend uh, undocumented immigrants, and is reimbursed about $2 million. Um, this year's budget proposed by the president actually calls for cutting a lot of those reimbursements to, to border communities at the same time as it's, as it's supplying more money for more border enforcement, more walls, more border patrol, et cetera. Um, so in a lot of these counties, the, the anger that's directed at migrants themselves for uh, you know, putting the strain on the social services you know, actually comes from the fact that the federal government isn't living up to its obligations. And Congress people know that, uh, understand that, state legislators, uh, but for the general public, that's something that you usually don't, you know, you don't go that far into the, the issue. Next slide, please. Uh, uh, other parts of the cost that are usually, um, well, the assumption that costs uh, by immigrants are in federal services. Uh, TANF, which is Temporary Assistance for Needy, fa needy Families, which replaced what used to be AFDC, uh, which was assistance for families, aid to families with dependent children, uh, the food stamps, and the Medicaid program. The fact is that undocumented immigrants aren't eligible for any of these programs. And when you read studies that talk about the high cost of you know, undocumented immigrants coming using up these services, what they're really talking about is legal immigrants. Um, and a lot of the times, the children of undocumented immigrants who are themselves citizens or, or legal residents um, who are the ones that can uh, qualify for things like food stamps or Medicaid. Um, but, I mean, the reality is you are not eligible if you are here undocumented. Um, the other costs are public education is a big one that people um, point to a lot, the cost of educating all of these immigrant children, which, again, most of those children are... Uh, children of undocumented parents but themselves are citizens. A very small percentage of children in public schools are actually undocumented themselves. Uh, I think it's about 10% right now. Uh, and then healthcare, emergency healthcare, because since a lot of undocumented families are ineligible for Medicaid or things like that, what ends up happening is they wait until you know your cold turns into pneumonia or you know something like that, and then they have to go to the emergency room, and that is federally mandated. Um, so that and that is a, a lot more expensive than preventive care. 
Um, so those are two areas where we see a high cost. Next slide. Aside from the cost, we also have to acknowledge that there are a lot of contributions. We've, we've talked about some of them. Um, and a lot of the times, in the, especially in the current political climate, it, uh, it seems we forget about this. And, you know, the whole, all the talk is about how much immigrants cost, um, you know, that they're allegedly bringing crime or, you know, not acculturating, things like that. Um, but actually, the contributions of immigrants are significant. Um, as was pointed out in, uh, in Eric's part, uh, the economic growth of the 1990s, of the late 1990s, was fueled in large part by, by the presence of, of immigrants, both documented and undocumented. Uh, for example, in the year 2000, undocumented immigrants from Mexico alone contributed an estimated $220 billion to United States GDP. Also, 11 job categories would have seen their workforce contract by more than 7% during the 1990s if it wasn't for the presence of uh, immigrants. This according to the Department of Labor. As far as uh, wages are concerned, uh, most studies agree that the average wage of U.S.-born workers have actually increased because of the presence of immigrants. This calls into question the assumption of competition and the argument that immigrants, by their mere presence, drive wages down. Um, people argue that, well, of course, no American wants to, you know, pick apples or something because it's paid so low. But if it wasn't for the immigrants that were here, wages would have to go up because, you know, supply and demand. Um, but actually, that's that's a very questionable assumption. Most uh, Studies agree that in the, between 1990 and 2000, the average U.S. born worker saw a rise in, in his or her salary by two to two and a half percent, uh, directly related to the presence of, of immigrants. Um, at the same time though, and this is, this is a, a cost that we do have to acknowledge, the real wages of native born workers with a high, without a high school diploma did drop by one percent. Um, but if you look at workers with a high school diploma or more, the increase was between 3 and 4% overall. Um, so the argument is made that because of the economic activity uh, brought by immigrants, wages are actually increasing in most sectors of our economy. Um, taxes are another big issue. Most, uh, or a lot of the rhetoric you hear is that immigrants come here, they take advantage of, of services, and they don't pay taxes. Um, Basically, blatantly false. Uh, more than half of all undocumented workers in this country are working, you know, quote-unquote, on the books, uh, which is with a, a fake Social Security number or ID card, you know, things like that. Um, and because they're working on the books, they do contribute to tax rolls. They, they pay taxes. They pay Social Security. The difference is they can't apply for tax refunds at the end of the year, and they will never benefit from the Social Security uh, contributions that they've given. In fact, it's estimated that the amount of Social Security tax paid and not redistributed in 2002 is about, was about $463 billion. And a lot of that, um, though it's hard to see, to know exactly what percentage, is from undocumented workers who have been working for, you know, decades in the country. Uh, immigrants pay between 90 and $140 billion uh, a year in federal, state, and local income taxes. So again, the, the, the charge that 
immigrants aren't contributing to the economy just does not uh, hold up to scrutiny. Uh, when it comes to housing, uh, a surprisingly large number of immigrants are actually homeowners. Uh, according to a study by the American Immigration Law Foundation, um, household growth, which drives demand, may exceed 12 million dollars, uh, 12 million new houses between 2000 and 2010. And immigrants will contribute to more than one quarter of that increase. Um, and according to a survey in 2001 by the American Housing uh, Survey, there are more than 5.7 million foreign-born homeowners in the United States, which represent about $1.2 trillion in home value and $876 billion in home equity. Um, so again, a lot of the housing boom of the late 90s was fueled by the presence of, of uh, immigrants. Um, the business ownership we mentioned briefly, uh, it's estimated that about 13% of, uh, of immigrants are business owners themselves. Um, and in a lot of places, uh, specifically in parts of New York and other parts of the East Coast, there have been neighborhoods that have been uh, totally blighted a couple of years ago and are now being resurrected by the presence of uh, immigrant enclaves and immigrant businesses. And then lastly, the military is something that we seldom think about, but especially you know, now during a time of war, uh, it's something that we should definitely keep in mind that the numbers of Latino, uh, specifically uh, recruits, is uh, on the rise and it has been one of the highest um, between 1992 and 2001, uh, the total, the overall uh, strength of the military dropped by 23%, while at the same time, the number of Latinos grew by 30%. Um, and right now, Latinos have some of the highest retention rates, uh, and a lot of uh, permanent residents join the military with the kind of uh, promise that they'll you know, achieve uh, citizenship or be put on a fast track to citizenship when they're, when they're finished with their tours of duty. Um, so again, those are significant contributions. Next slide. Now, it's obvious that the system, the way it's operating right now, is not working. And I think we can all acknowledge that undocumented migration is not a good thing. Um, so we do have to work towards changing it. Now, by this, I, I don't want to say that we should you know, build more walls or hire more Border Patrol or you know, things like that to, to stop undocumented migration. What I'm talking about is a comprehensive reform of the whole system because as Eric said, the system is currently right now set up to encourage uh, law-breaking, basically. Um, the reasons for, for the reduction of, of undocumented migration are one, the human toll of the migrants. The journey, as a lot of students see in Eric's classes, is incredibly dangerous, whether it be crossing the river in Texas or walking through the desert in Arizona, which is actually where the majority of immigration is taking place today. Um, is you know, extremely dangerous and full of you know, deaths from dehydration, from exposure, um, from armed bandits, which I'll get into in a little bit. Um, another reason is once they get to this country, they don't enjoy the same rights and privileges as other workers. And it's difficult to maintain contact with families when you are limited in going back and forth. Again, remember that if you're aspiring to get you know, legal status at some point, you basically can't go back home at all um, because if that's ever discovered, you're barred um, for life if you've been here for more than one year. Um, now also, the, the, such a high percentage of undocumented migration does undermine the rule of law um, and is obviously not what we want in terms of national security. Um, so what, what can we do about it? Um, for the past 20 years, which I would call the, the current paradigm of of border enforcement, um, 
our focus has been on, on deterrence, the, the strategy being prevention through deterrence. This started in the mid-1990s. 1994 was when actually most of these uh, programs were implemented. Um, Operation Gatekeeper is what, what it was called in California, Operation Safeguard in Arizona, and Operation Hold the Line in Texas. Now, what this did is build the walls that we now see in major urban areas across the border. It had dramatically increased the number of, of Border Patrol agents, the budget of, uh, of the agencies that enforce border security, and the amount of technology used along the border. Next slide. As we can see, the Border Patrol budget in 1993 was $400 million. By 1997, it had doubled. And for 2006, it's going to surpass, actually, $3 billion. Um, that's just the Border Patrol budget. Overall, the spending of border enforcement has increased from $740 million in 1993 to $6.7 uh, today. Um, before the mid-1990s, most undocumented migrant traffic was concentrated in major urban areas. Um, for example, San Diego and Tijuana, uh, El Paso uh, and Juarez. Um, you know, those kind of major uh, sister cities is what people on the border usually call them because, you know, most of them were there before the actual border was, you know, dividing them. Um, what, what this strategy did was to heavily enforce those uh, high traffic urban areas and funnel uh, immigration out towards more remote areas of the desert. The idea was that, well, yeah, a couple of people will probably, will probably die, you know, when they try and cross the desert, but then people will realize how hard it is and then they'll, they'll simply just stop trying. You know, if you, if you put up a tremendous show of force on the border um, and make it so that you have to suffer tremendously to get across, you know, people will, people will realize that and they just, you know, and they'll, they'll uh, stop trying to come. That was the, basically um, what the deterrence strategy uh, came down to. Now, to do that, they, they built those walls, um, which I don't know if you've seen pictures of them, but they're between 10 and 15 high-foot metal walls made mostly of old uh, landing strips from the first Persian Gulf War. Um, and then, you know, complemented by stadium-style lighting all along uh, the walls, ground sensors, you know, helicopters, unmanned uh, drones, you know, that fly around with cameras and things like that. So, it, I mean, it's, uh, it did, it was a very efficient strategy at stopping uh, the flow of migrants through those areas. However, all it did was push the, the flows out to the edges. Uh, next slide. Uh, the number of agents in 1994 was 4,200. In 2000, it had almost doubled to 9,200. Right now, it's, a, it's at over 12,000, and the 2006 budget calls for hiring 1,500 more. Uh, that's the president's budget. As, apart from that, there are proposals in Congress that seek to add even more uh, manpower to the border. Uh, next slide. Now, what have we gotten for this tremendous increase in cost, um, you know, in manpower and in force along the border. In the early 90s, we were apprehending about 1 million undocumented migrants uh, per year. In 2004, it was about 1.1 million. Um, basically the same. That number had actually dropped right after 2001 and was starting to pick up again in 2004. Again, showing that the migration flows are really connected to the economy and almost completely disconnected from any type of enforcement that we try to have. Um, 
crossings by Mexicans, which are the only numbers that we could find, um, have doubled uh, between 1990 and 94 and today. Um, so again, obviously, the, the system that we have so far hasn't worked. And the total number of undocumented uh, population in the country has increased from about 5 million to more than 10 million since 1993. Um, so again, a completely ineffective, utter failure of a policy. There really is no way to argue um, oneself out of that. What it has caused is uh, the jump in the number of deaths. Before 1994, there were virtually no deaths along the border. Uh, in fact, the Border Patrol didn't even keep the records because it was so few. Um, today, it's over 500 that are found. You know, the people that are found uh, in the desert, real numbers could be, you know, twice, three times higher. No one really knows because, as you probably know if you've ever visited the desert, it's really easy to, you know, get lost there and just never be found or, you know, the uh, people's bodies deteriorate really quickly, are eaten by animals, you know, things like that. Um, so judging by the amount of phone calls that border uh, nonprofits get from relatives in Mexico and Central America asking about, you know, whether they've seen their loved ones or things like that, uh, most people estimate that that number is at least twice as high. Uh, next slide. Actually, can we go back to that slide a little more? Um, other other effects of, of those policies... Um, that I just briefly mentioned. Um, one has been the huge increase in the the size and sophistication of the human smuggling networks that now operate along the border. Um, pre-1994, it was common for you know people to be to cross on their own, uh, to cross with a friend, or to you know have a relative or uh, someone they knew that can you know just uh, that knew where a hole in the fence was, for example, or things like that. Um, and, you know, charged anywhere from 100 to $500 to get them across. Um, currently, the average price uh, that migrants paid across the border is between $1,500 and $2,000 just to cross the border. If you're going to New York or, you know, Washington or something like that, there actually are networks that will get you all the way up there for much higher cost. Um, this has led to unscrupulous uh, smuggling uh, smugglers who don't want to lose their cargo. Imagine taking a group of 30, 50, 60 people at $2,000 per head um, across the desert. And if you're the smuggler, you're really on the low end of the, the food chain. You know, most of those networks are actually based in the United States and have everyone from recruiters who go down to Central America and Southern Mexico and advertise jobs um, to you know, bus companies that, that take the migrants from southern Mexico to the border, uh, to then the smugglers that smuggle them across the border, to people who operate safe houses, to people who have contacts with employers in, you know, agriculture, construction, whatever. Uh, these are basically, uh, you know, organized crime networks. And recent estimates uh, say that the human smuggling industry is actually more profitable than the drug industry. Um, and we know how much luck we've had, you know, fighting that. Um, one other, one other uh, effect, just briefly, is that before 1994, what you saw, for the most part, was a circular pattern of migration, where people would come, work for a growing season or for a year or for a couple of years, and then go back. Um, really ironically, what the increase in border enforcement has done is disrupt that circular flow, so that now, if you're coming across to work because you want to you know, send money home to your family or build a house and eventually return, well, now you realize how hard it was and how expensive it was, and you have to question, do I really want to return and risk having to come later, or should I maybe just pay a smuggler to bring my wife and kids 
Um, and so what we've seen is a lot more permanent migration into the United States and a lot more women and children migrating along the border, um, which adds a whole other issue to the human suffering um, aspect. You know, a lot of rapes, a lot of robberies, um, a lot of suffering. The border class visits um, some of those migrant shelters along the border. And I think what students see there is the main reason why, you know, they come back completely changed. Um, next slide. So we know that the enforcement uh, strategy hasn't worked. Another, uh, I guess, avenue that has been popular and is increasingly popular is the state-led, or actually citizen-led initiatives, but in states. Um, the first example of that was California, where we saw Proposition 187, which passed, um, but then was struck down as unconstitutional because they wanted to deny uh, federally mandated programs to undocumented immigrants, you know, going to school, going to the, getting immunizations, going to doctors, things like that. Um, in Arizona, voters last year passed Proposition 200, which was basically modeled after uh, 187, but, you know, carefully redone to, to make sure that it wasn't going to be unconstitutional. Um, and then in Colorado, we'll be talking a little bit towards the end about an initiative that will be on the ballot most likely this fall um, that is basically follows the same model. Um, all of these uh, initiatives basically seek one thing, which is to deny services to people that are here uh, undocumented. The idea is that if, uh, if people come and they can't get welfare, if they can't go to the doctor, if they can't uh, you know, get services, then maybe they'll just go back to Mexico or at least go to another state. Um, that's what our, our representative from uh, Colorado Springs, Mr. Uh, Schultz, uh, was quoted recently in the newspaper saying, Colorado has to become more unfriendly to undocumented immigrants. Um, you know, and this will at least drive them to go to other states. Again, that kind of falls back on the assumptions, which we believe are false, that immigrants are coming here for services and not for the jobs. Our you know, prediction, if you want to call it that, is that as long as the economy stays strong, um, yeah, this might increase some suffering and cause some more discomfort uh, among people that are here, but it's not going to you know, cause anyone to to go back home or to go to another state. Um, also, Proposition 200, according to, to the governor, Janet Napolitano's office, uh, was going to cost the state more than $200 million to implement and enforce. Um, and since the services that are actually the most expensive, which are, uh, like we mentioned, education and emergency medical care, are exempt from this bill, uh, it's basically going to cost a lot more to implement than it is going to save um, in terms of taxpayer money. You know, they're going to have to train uh, state workers in how to identify people, whether they're here legally or not. Uh, they're going to have to implement new databases and things like that to be able to check uh, identity and legality. Uh, so the costs, again, are going to be uh, a lot more than any savings that, that would come about. Next slide. Okay. Let me go to the next one. There are um, a number of national immigration policies or legislative initiatives that are up now and being considered. Um, the ones I'm going to focus on real briefly and depart a little bit from my notes um, involve the McCain-Kennedy bill, a new bill just introduced uh, by Arlen Specter, which really captures some of the main provisions outlined by President Bush in some of his policy talks. Those are the two main Senate bills right now. And the House bill 
um, that has already passed, whereas things are just beginning to get going in the Senate. The House bill that passed is known as the Sensenbrenner bill. So let me start, I guess, with the Senate um, bills. And I'm going to depart a little from this, as there's a lot of new analysis comparing uh, the McCain-Kennedy with um, the Specter bill. I think the main differences revolve around three or four issues. One is the treatment of undocumented immigrants already in the United States, the nature of a temporary worker program, fairness for family immigration, and enforcement provisions. Um, regarding the first issue of treatment of undocumented immigrants with the McCain-Kennedy, um, in order to begin the process of a legalized status within that piece of le proposed legislation, you must have been working in the U.S. as of May of 2005, undergo a background check, pay a $1,000 penalty in addition to application costs. These are really complicated, but I got to go over some of this, so I'll try to do it, the main points. You receive a six-year non-immigrant visa that includes full work authorization, travel permission, and ability to bring your family. Your status is tied to good character. The immigrant is not tied to one employer, so he can, quote, vote with his or her feet to get the best job possible. And it permits the broadest range of undocumented immigrants possible to apply. Um, the long and short of it for undocumented immigrants, after six years of model behavior, the immigrant can show that he has cleared up his back taxes and is learning English, pay an additional $1,000 fine plus application costs, and get in line to apply for a green card. That's the more progressive legislation. The Specter legislation on this issue of treatment of undocumented immigrants, those that would qualify for some sort of ability to stay and work in the U.S., is that you must have uh, been working in the U.S. as of January 04. You have to plead guilty to being undocumented and waive rights, undergo background checks. Employer has to pay a $500 fee. Immigrant has to pay back taxes. You receive a conditional work authorization, travel permission, and ability to bring family. Status is tied to employment, so portability is limited to employers that pass a labor market test to hire a new temporary worker. Many, if not most, undocumented immigrants, if the Specter Bill were to pass, are ineligible to legalize their status or even to obtain, frankly, the work permit, not legalize their status, um, because of strict employment requirement, the cutoff date, or other bars tied to their undocument, undocumented status, such as having been ordered deported in the past, not departing according to a voluntary departure agreement, failing to attend a removal hearing, or aiding an individual who enters unlawfully. There is no path to a green card in the Specter Bill or U.S. citizenship. That's, the immigrant could apply through normal channels and wait decades or longer for their status, the point that Hector was raising earlier. Major differences on the nature of a temporary worker program as well. Um, on the McCain-Kennedy, 
the more liberal version of legislation. It creates a new visa program, H5A, for foreign workers to fill jobs in hotels, re restaurants, cleaning, etc. Program starts out with 400,000 visas. An employer wishing to hire an H5A worker would have to first attempt to find a U.S. worker. Um, there are a variety of labor protections. The H-5A worker would be allowed to work in the U.S. for a total of six years, but could apply for a green card or other status during that time. Status is not tied to employment. However, H-5A worker has the same portability as a green card holder to vote with his feet and get the best job possible. The Specter Bill on this issue of temporary worker program creates a new visa program, H-2C, for foreign workers to fill similar sectors of work hotel, restaurants, etc. Program is uncapped, but a commission is established to recommend a quota. An employer wishing to hire an H2C worker would have to first attempt to find a U.S. worker. Additional labor uh, protections are built in, um, but others are a little more extreme or less generous than the McCain-Kennedy. The H2C worker would be allowed to work in the U.S. for a total of six years, but would be required to return home for at least one year at the end, which is really impractical once you've kind of established that those roots and foundation within the U.S. The status is tied to employment, portability limited to employers that pass the labor market test. So on the one hand, the Specter Bill it has, leads to no path to a green card and U.S. citizenship, whereas McCain-Kennedy enables you to earn a green card, but the worker must either have an employer, sponsor, or work in the U.S. for at least four years, show that he's learning English, and has maintained good character and pay additional application fees. There are enforcement differences between the two. Uh, perhaps in discussion time, since we're kind of hitting the end here, we can go into some of those differences. I would like to make a couple comments on Sensenbrenner, wherever that is. There it is. The two bills I just outlined, McCain-Kennedy and Specter, are the two pieces really being debated currently in the Senate. Within the House, the Senate Sensenbrenner bill has already passed and is by far the most draconian piece of national immigration legislation we have seen. It makes it an unlawful makes unlawful presence an aggravated felony broadens the definition of smuggling so that anyone aiding undocumented immigrants could be fined, imprisoned, or have imprisoned or have property confiscated. Now this would mean things like my friend Stacy over there, a health worker in the public health department. Um, technically speaking, according to the letter of the law, she would theoretically, possibly, be considered a smuggler for simply showing up to work and not necessarily knowing the status of somebody coming to receive some services. Gives the Department of Homeland Security much greater powers to deny citizenship to immigrants and shields those decisions from court review. One more. It includes, it includes an employment verification system that would require employers to check the status of newly hired and longtime employees, require the system be used by union hiring halls, recruitment centers, would overturn legal decisions where courts have found that Congress went too far in stripping immigrants of rights and legislation passed in the Clinton administration in 1996. Would separate more families by extending the types of, expanding the types of crimes that be considered deportable offenses 
and by limiting review by the courts, and it would build significantly more border fencing. Keep going. Keep going. Did you want to go over this? Okay, we'll just briefly go over some of the bills that are being considered in the, the state uh, legislature right now. On March 9th, there was a huge hearing in which I think it was 13 uh, bills were heard. Um, some of those were outright rejected, and, and six of those were, uh, were uh, postponed indefinitely for, for hearing. Um, so the ones that are currently still, uh, I guess, able to be considered uh, when they come back from committee um, is the HB 1131, which these are relatively straightforward, requires a law enforcement agency to determine a defendant's citizenship or immigration status before allowing bail to be posted on their behalf um, and prohibits bail bonding agents from posting bail for undocumented immigrants. The idea is that, well, if you let an undocumented immigrant uh, get out of jail by paying bail, they're just going to you know, go back to Mexico or wherever they're from and evade the law. Um, so that's one of them, which, by the way, looks like it's going to pass really easily. Uh, next one. Um, Senate Bill 90, which prohibits illegal immigration sanctuaries. Um, I don't know how many people are familiar with the sanctuary policies of a lot of cities, including, for example, Denver, Durango, uh, in this state. Um, cities since the 1980s have passed um, kind of ordinances in which they tell their law enforcement uh, personnel to, to not check for immigration status. Um, this would prohibit that. Prohibit the passage of laws preventing enforcement officers and other government employees from cooperating with federal immigration officials regarding an individual's immigration status. Requires law enforcement officials or other government employees who have probable cause to believe a person does not have legal presence to report them to federal immigration officials. And local governments who do not obey this provision would not receive grants from the State Department of Local Affairs, um, which is basically one of the ways they have of enforcing this. Um, the second provision... Um, was something that was really uh, talked about uh, last year, I think it was, with the CLEAR Act, um, if any of you remember that one, which uh, would have forced all law enforcement agencies to basically become immigration law enforcers. Um, and that is something that's, by and large, heavily... Um, it's, uh, I guess it's considered a bad idea by law enforcement agencies themselves, uh, sheriff's associations, uh, police chiefs um, have come out saying, you know, not only are we already stretched thin and don't have the resources for uh, enforcing immigration law, you know, our jails don't have the capacity, our officers aren't trained in immigration law, um, so how do you expect us to comply with this? This is another example of what uh, are called unfunded mandates. Next. Um, this one would criminalize more the, the act of uh, providing a false social security number or ID to a prospective employer. Um, pretty straightforward. Next one. And then here's the, the initiative that, that I briefly mentioned earlier and said we would talk about at the end. Um, as of now, it's known as initiative number 55. It may change during the, the process. Um, and right now, I think they just actually started gathering signatures for this. Um, the group that's promoting this is called Defend Colorado Now, which is why we're calling it the Defend Colorado Now proposal. Um, and that's language directly from the amendment. 
So except as mandated by federal law, the provision of non-emergency services by the state of Colorado or any county, city, or other political subdivision thereof is restric restricted to citizens of and aliens lawfully present in the United States of America. Again, modeled almost exactly after Proposition 200 and Proposition 187. Um, next slide. The second provision, any person lawfully residing in the state of Colorado shall have standing to sue the state of Colorado or any county, city, or other political subdivision of the state of Colorado to enforce this section, um, is a very controversial um, provision because you know, what that could mean could be a lot of things. Uh, does it mean that if I or, or anyone here suspects somehow that you know, a local Head Start program, a, a preschool, a health uh, services, you know, uh, part of the state is providing services to anyone undocumented, you can sue, and then the burden is on them to prove that they're not um, providing those services. So the amount in cost that could theoretically uh, originate from this, this kind of litigation is, you know, could be astronomical, not to mention that there's a lot of programs that would probably go completely bankrupt if they had to defend themselves in court every time somebody suspected uh, them of, you know, having given a service to someone who's here undocumented. Um, the other kind of uh, possibility is that this would increase racial profiling, which is uh, illegal, as we all know, because, you know, who do you ask? Uh, does this mean that the, the library, for example, would qualify under this? Does that mean that every time you go to the library, you have to show proof of citizenship or of legal residence to check out a book? Um, and if they do have to ask that, are they going to ask it of every single person that comes in, or are they going to, you know, choose one person over another to ask in that, you know, board, that kind of crosses into the racial profiling um, area? Uh, next slide. Again, just like Proposition 200, the amendment exempts federally mandated services such as emergency health care and K-12 education, which is where most of the cost um, is. Um, so again, a report by the Bell Policy Center in Denver recently found that it would cost taxpayers a lot more to enforce this proposal than it would save, and the numbers are in the next slide. Um, so for the fiscal year 2005-2006, as you can see, it would cost over $4 million to enforce and it would save approximately $460,000 um, in the services that would be theoretically denied to, to undocumented immigrants. Um, so you can see what the net cost would be, and then for the year after. Um, recently, I think it was also Representative Schultz again was interviewed about this, and he said, well, what you're leaving out of this equation is that if all these immigrants leave the state, we're going to save a lot of money over the, you know, the long term. Um, so again, I guess that's up for argument if this will really make anyone leave the state or if it'll just cost a lot to implement and, you know, make life just a little harder for some of our residents. Uh, next slide. Okay, so conclusions, finally. You can join me here, too. Uh, we go to the next slide. So from this presentation, what we have included, um, we can conclude that, one, immigration has its roots in globalization. Domestic immigration policy focused on enforcement has failed. Current enforcement efforts, such as, for example, Initiative 55, are counterproductive both economically and for national security reasons, and that we need comprehensive immigration reform. Now, I'll talk a little bit about the national security um, aspect. Um, currently, we have anywhere between 10 and 11. Some people, some of the estimates actually range from 8 to 15 
million uh, undocumented residents in the country, uh, people who have no identification, who the authorities don't know where they are, what they're doing, uh, etc., which I would think, especially in this political climate, is one of the things we least want um, in terms of national security. Now, even the most anti-immigrant uh, proponents, uh, whether they be politicians or citizens groups, acknowledge that deporting 11 million people from the country is pretty much a, not a viable way to go about it. It would be prohibitively expensive, and the political will to do it simply does not exist. Um, so if you can't deport everyone, that kind of follows, well, they're going to be here. What are you going to do about those millions of people that are already here? Um, the thing about th uh, initiatives like Initiative 55 and, and the Sensenbrenner Bill and other bills is that they basically amount to a war of attrition, right? If we can just make life hard enough, if we can deny people services, if we can, you know, make it insufferable, then people will leave and, you know, then we won't have to deport them. They'll just leave on their own. Um, I mean, I personally would submit the idea that this is both unrealistic, inhumane, um, and counterproductive to what we actually want to achieve. Um, so looking at all that, we see that immigration, uh, comprehensive immigration reform that addresses both the, the legal immigration system and the current high numbers of undocumented uh, immigration is uh, what we need. And in the next slide, we talk a little bit about what that would entail. Um, it must address the status of persons already living in the United States. So creating a guest worker program in which 90% of the people already living here are ineligible basically doesn't solve our problems. Um, it must provide for family reunification because if not, we're gonna continue to see undocumented migration of family members it must recognize our need for immigrant labor, and that can mean anything from you know, having a temporary guest worker program uh, to any sort of arrangement uh, that acknowledges that need. It must protect workers' rights, because in the past what we have seen with uh, guest worker programs is that they are tied to a single employer, that they aren't very effective at enforcing uh, workers' rights, and are open to a lot of exploitation. And finally, it must contain a path to citizenship. This list is a really you know, incomplete list of what, you know, uh, what we would actually need, but it's kind of the major things. And it was taken from a lot of different, you know, bits and pieces from a lot of different groups that are proposing uh, comprehensive immigration reform. And that's it. Thank you. That's a little longer than we thought, but uh, we tried to cover a lot of issues. We're willing to stay as long as people want to stay. So comments, questions, concerns. I think most of the um, national legislative initiatives, such as McCain-Kennedy, ties an increase of enforcement on the border with a dra dramatically expanded temporary guest worker program. So you legalize the flow while trying to curtail continued flow of undocumented labor. So you increase the incentives to first bring people out of the shadows who are currently undocumented. Secondly, to meet the labor need within those sectors we discussed in the presentation through a guest worker program while simultaneously 
not saying to the United States that they don't have a right to curtail their border. Every country has a right to do so, but to recognize the inherent contradiction given the need for labor. So they're usually, in my personal opinion, the more comprehensive proposals, such as McCain-Kennedy, kind of ties those issues together. Just a, two quick points. Um, the United States Chamber of Commerce is probably the major proponent of tying quota numbers to supply and demand of labor. Um, you know, they call the current numbers unrealistic, and since they're complete, completely disengaged from the supply and demand uh, that's created by the economy, they, they, you know, will not reflect reality, basically, is what it comes down to. The thing that we did leave out of here for a number of reasons is that at the same time as you pursue a more comprehensive immigration strategy internationally, because we have to remember that immigration is fundamentally an international phenomenon, is you pursue trade policies and, and trade agreements that are more fair to the countries um, that are generating more of the migrant flows. We've seen a total difference between the way the European Union has, has uh, uh, pursued economic integration uh, which has included labor rights and labor agreements. And, and funding and for funding. the most undeveloped countries within mm -hmm. the Union, Spain, yeah. Portugal, et cetera. As opposed to how we have done it, which is basically increase the inequality between countries. Um, and when you have countries that close together with such a tremendous amount of inequality, I don't think any amount of walls you know, are going to keep people from crossing. I think Joe had a question. Um, it's a really good question that you're raising, and it's one that I struggle with every time I go to Mexico. Because again, there's a relationship on both sides of the border, the type of economic policies that are being pursued. Um, one would like to see, I mean, labor law, for instance, in Mexico is actually really good with lots of protections. The problem on paper, the problem is they don't enforce it. So I am an advocate personally. I'd like to know what you think. We haven't really discussed this one recently of applying additional pressure to increase wages to the extent possible, create more linkages with all investment that goes into Mexico to other sectors within the economy to increase jobs, et cetera. But it goes back to what Joe said in terms of tying it into some of these trade provisions or investment strategies that make those requirements apply a little more pressure on Mexico to create more possibilities. They're in a hard place. On the other hand, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, just to make it less black and white, um, one thing we noticed traveling to the border all these years, the last four or five years, is more and more of these maquila plants on the border are moving to China. Why? Because the wages are even lower there. So it creates this competition to create the lowest wage possible to maintain the investment that's coming into the, into the country. So we can say, let's push them to increase wages, et cetera. But on the other hand, there is this global reality, especially due to emerging powers such as China, et cetera, that make it a little more complicated to realize that. Mm -hmm. The other thing we've noticed in the Mexican case is increased pressure applied by the United States on certain kinds of assistance and investment into Mexico tied to tightening the border, the southern Mexican border, against Central Americans coming up. And there's frankly a contradiction. There's an increase of human rights violations of Central Americans crossing into Mexican territory, and the same time the Mexican government is complaining about the violation of human rights of Mexicans crossing the U.S. border. And that just has to be laid out there because it, it, it's a reality. 
So I'm not really giving you a lot of answers. I'm actually creating additional challenges to what you are suggesting, which is a good point and demonstrates some of the contradiction inherent in this. And ironically enough, NAFTA was actually proposed by Mexican President De Gortari to uh, the first, you know, George Bush the first, who wanted nothing to do with it, and then along came Clinton and kind of ran with it. Um, it was actually a, a Mexican-initiated uh, trade agreement. Um, we should probably point out that the president and his whole cabinet and most of the people who were in charge of that were all American-trained, uh, you know, free traders, um, economists, um, <clears throat> that kind of believed that NAFTA would create jobs, that it would increase competition, that it would open the American market for Mexican products. Um, so when they were sold, NAFTA was actually sold as, hey, it's going to decrease immigration. I mean, even in the United States, when people were against it because they thought, Americans would lose jobs. It was sold as, well, at least it'll, you know, it'll create jobs in Mexico, so therefore you'll have less immigration and less competition for your jobs, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what we have seen is that the reality was totally the opposite. It did create jobs, um, but again, low-wage, export-oriented, no-benefits kind of jobs. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't any coincidence that these uh, border strategies were implemented in 1994, the same year that NAFTA was implemented, um, because, I mean, some people had to know that it was probably going to increase immigration, um, but that's not the way it sold. And apart from that is a lot of international pressure um, in terms of foreign investment and in terms of world, world uh, international organizations such as the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund, um, that put a lot of pressure on countries in Latin America and other parts of the countries to pursue certain uh, ways of, of handling their economy. And you suffer pretty big consequences if you don't. I mean, look at Venezuela right now. Um, Some projections, last point on this, we talked about this for a while. Yeah, Some projections subject. are that the Mexican economy will actually expand significantly coupled in about 10 years, coupled with a decrease in the fertility rate, thus meaning more people will stay. So some analysts argue that the problem that we're experiencing in terms of these large numbers coming is actually a problem now for this next immediate period of time that will decrease over time due to those projections. I, I respect your own experience and your, your opinion on this. I think where we're in agreement is perhaps, and I don't mean to speak for you, so correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that what we're kind of arguing here is to try to find strategies and legislative ways to reduce the flow of undocumented migration and facilitate the ability to allow people to immigrate legally based on an argument about economic need, et cetera. So I, I don't mean to at all take you on on your point based on your own experience, but I think there may be some point of agreement in between on some facets of it. I think the alternative is if we don't find a way to work towards the legalization of the large undocumented population would be an enforcement strategy, which we're arguing won't work. You know, some, some estimates are that 80% of all immigrant households in the U.S. include a U.S. citizen as well. The potential disruption to the lives of an awful lot of people through an enforcement strategy that you seem to indicate should occur seems pretty hot. Let's move. 
Maybe just a, just a couple of quick points. Uh, let's move on. Okay. Thank you for your point, sir. Um, yeah, when, when European integration was first being pursued, uh, the two countries with the lowest, uh, I guess, GDP or comparative economies were Spain and Portugal. Um, and so for 10 years before full integration was uh, pursued, there were trade policies aimed at increasing uh, those economies so that they would be more on par with economies in the rest of Europe so that when the borders finally were opened, you didn't have huge influx of Spanish and Portuguese workers into other Western European countries. Um, that's kind of the opposite of what we've done, um, which is pursue economic integration, but at the same time not address inherent and created inequalities. So therefore, it makes sense that if you open the borders, you probably would have a huge influx of workers um, from other countries. And so that, that I guess, is, is the main difference. And <coughs> if we were pursuing a similar strategy, it would take some time, but we could eventually get to a point where if we had open borders, you know, Americans would be going into Mexico and doing business, working, Mexicans would be coming here, and it would be a, kind of on an equal footing. Um, and that, that, that is basically the European model. And obviously it hasn't been completely perfect and there have been, uh, you know, flaws, but by and large it's worked out fairly well. Um, and so that is a major argument by uh, sort of international organizations that focus on trade is that the terms in which the trade agreements have been set have been really unfair. Um, and so, you know, if we were to, I don't know, knock down the borders right now, you know, we probably would have for at least a while um, some negative effects of, of a lot of population movement. Um, so, I mean, so that's, I don't know if there's any more. I would also, I would like to address maybe just really quickly one aspect that is left out of the, I guess the, the moral argument. First of all, there is a huge difference between coming from a country in Eastern Europe or Western Europe or you know, the, uh, the Far East as opposed to coming from Latin America. And yet yeah, it is almost impossible to, to immigrate here. Um, the kind of moral argument that because some people have to wait, everybody should wait. Um, I don't know, it, it kind of tends to ignore the history that we have, that, well, this country has in creating the conditions that are making it unbearable for a lot of people to stay in those countries. So morally, I mean, us here in the United States can buy a pound of bananas for 19 cents sometimes um, through economic policies that we have pursued, that we have pressured countries into accepting. Um, you know, I don't want to get into the whole other part, but we have, you know, overthrown regimes, assassinated presidents, you know, stuff like that, who have tried to stand in opposition. And so having those people who suffered because of our actions in the past, uh, morally judging them because they're breaking what is a civil law, not a criminal law, um, and calling them criminals and labeling them as such, I think doesn't take into account a lot of the, the aspects. Um, well, first of all, yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. Gang activity is a huge problem. And by and large, the people that suffer the most are the innocent other migrants that are not part of the gangs. Um, in, in the case of the MS-13 gang that you mentioned, um, the history is really interesting because it's actually started by U.S.-trained mercenaries from El Salvador who were recruited to fight in Nicaragua and then given status to come live in Los Angeles, who then, you know, and then the gang phenomenon grew there and kind of got exported back to Latin America. Um, but again, in the case of, I mean, those people who are in gangs that commit crimes are criminals. 
and they can be tried like other criminals. Um, I don't know where we would get at if uh, people are being arrested on the sole fact of being uh, here undocumented and then deported. I mean, I don't think that would do anything to actually solve the issue of, of the gangs because those gangs are kind of by their nature now really international organizations and they kind of benefit from getting arrested and then eventually deported because then they can just keep working in Central America or Mexico and eventually make their way back here. Um, there's actually been reports and kind of uh, like even documentaries on this, how, how ineffective that strategy is. Um, and so, I mean, obviously that's a complex problem that law enforcement you know, has had a hard time solving, so we're not going to have any full answers here. But I think, uh, you know, the, the immigration aspect of it wouldn't really be the most productive way um, of going about getting rid of the gang problem. I think to the extent that any bill ties local law enforcement, to be, ties them to report to immigration and to connect those things, I'm troubled by actually from a national security and a crime level. In talking with the police chief locally, among others, you know, the real fear is that when real crime, like murder, happens, that immigrant populations will be too scared to come forward and report those crimes, thus increasing the possibility of kind of increasing um, the inability to prosecute crime and to create conditions of security for our communities. And I think a lot of police chiefs, sheriff departments have come out against provisions. The reason I'm bringing it up now is it's currently tied to that sanctuary provision. So I, I think you're raising some really good points. I would caution personally on this other provision tied to that. Yeah. Um, we were talking about... It's the, H right. HR 4437 is what it's called. Um, more commonly known it's, as the In the Sense press, it's referred to as the chief sponsor of the bill is, is Representative Sensenbrenner from Wisconsin, so people call it the Sensenbrenner bill. And it actually and that, has, that has passed. passed the House. What happens, the what happens is the Senate is now considering, I, I failed to say this, immigration reform. Once the Senate, if they do, passes a bill, which will likely, given the two bills that are being proposed, look very different than the Sensenbrenner bill, a conference committee would be formed would pass a piece of legislation if it all continued to go through, and that would return to the House and Senate for separate votes and then be sent to the president. So that's where it stands right now in, in Congress. Sure. Yep. Oh, well, I mean, unfortunately, neither of us are European experts, and I wish we were because there's a lot of interesting parallels that can be drawn. Um, I mean, as far as absorption of just population and workers in general, um, that's a good question. And... I don't have the answer for it, and I think um, that none of us are advocating for bringing in the you know largest number of workers possible to to uh, to, to the U.S. who can then stay permanently and not have jobs. I mean, the facts right now are that almost 90% uh, of undocumented <coughs> immigrants are participating in the labor force. So the only reason they are here is because there are those jobs. Um, there hasn't really been. Uh, much of a problem with immigrants coming and just kind of hanging out and causing trouble and not working. I mean, that when problems do exist there, it's more the children of immigrants, which then that kind of points to a host of other kind of social reasons for why youth is disaffected and, and all that stuff. Um, and I think going back to the 
balancing out the 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 economies on an international scale would make it so that you know we wouldn't have to just support an influx of workers here because we'd be helping promote policies that create jobs in other countries too, uh, living wage uh, paying jobs. Um, so I mean, I think that's. Is there anything that you could add? I mean, I I I agree in thinking about a guest worker program that with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which argues that you need to first document in any kind of guest worker program that native labor is not available to meet the need um, for the guest worker uh, program. So if there's a particular harvest of apples in Washington State that there is not enough available later labor, that that employer would be able to apply for guest workers to meet that particular labor need. So when you get to carrying capacity or maximum capacity, I go back to intelligent legislative proposals that require documenting need for the labor and matching it with that available labor that exists. In the case that we're talking about tonight, it's Mexican labor. So I appreciate the concern and would argue that some of these proposals are beginning to get us at a point to be able to quantify that particular number. Yeah, the Chamber of Commerce would agree with your comment. Why don't we expand dramatically those categories in current immigration law that enable the importation of guest workers? We have a guest worker program. It's just very, very minimal. And the Broadmoor is a very good example, and you're right, it's Jamaica in particular where many of those workers come from. There's been some good, good writing on this. So again, there are many advocates to expand the kind of program that currently works um, and to give the option to workers that stay for prolonged periods who want to, to apply for legalized status over time, but to also facilitate those that prefer more circular rotation. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, there were lots of interesting things that we didn't expect, but I think relating it to the previous question, one of the things that hit me really hard uh, the first time I went was that most people, I mean, everyone I think that I talked to did not want to leave their, their country. Um, they weren't coming here because, you know, they thought the American way of life was great and wanted to come and be part of it uh, because they wanted to, you know, own certain things or have the comforts that we have here. Almost everyone I met, and especially people who had already been here and kind of gone back and were forced to come back, said, you know, we really wish we could just stay in our own country. Um, and we really wish that since there are no jobs here, and I know that there's a job waiting for me in Chicago or wherever, that there was a way for me to just go work and come back. You know, I don't want to stay in the United States. Um, and that, to me, having grown up as a child of immigrants, but, you know, definitely in the American kind of way of life. And I always thought, well, of course everybody wants to come live in the U.S. You know, it's great. I've visited, you know, my family in Mexico before, and I understand why they want to come. But that wasn't really the, the case. And that was one of the things that really hit me pretty hard. No, most, most people want to. Well, partly it's because of the, how difficult it is to go back and forth that once you come and you go through that once, I mean, not only is it difficult and dangerous, it's highly expensive. So a lot of people that come end up having to work the first year just to pay off the smuggler um, that brought them here. And, you know, once you've done that, who wants to go back and suffer through the thing again? If you know you can't make a livelihood in your own country, um, 
then you know you're, you're going to stay here. Um, I mean, I can speak from my own experience, I guess. My parents came in the mid-70s, and they both had the idea of coming and working for a little while and leaving. Um, back then, the situation was different, but again, it was the, you know, the, the cost of going back and forth and the fact that once you are here for three years or six years, I mean, you might get married, you might have a child, you might you know, make some really good friends, buy a house, and then it becomes harder, which is why you know, comprehensive immigration reform should provide, on top of temporary worker programs, an opportunity for those who want to, to become citizens to do so. But, I mean, I think that, by and large, the majority would work and go back, as, from what we've seen anyway, come from kind of anecdotal uh, evidence, and very few would actually want to stay. I mean, even people who are working in Colorado Springs right now, I interact with a lot of them, and they all say, man, I'd be back in my hometown in a heartbeat if I could. You know, life is so much better there. It's just that I can't work over there, so what's the point? You know, that's, that's the kind of issue. Uh, I don't know that I can beat that. Um, <laughs> I think in this last trip, for me, it was the increased number of women and children that I met on the Mexican side of the border with virtually nothing that were about to cross into the United States. And whatever one thinks about immigration or the right of that person to, to come to the United States, just putting that aside as a human, that was hard to see. Knowing what I know about what would happen once that person crosses and had one gallon of water that will only last for that first day in the desert, and it's a three or four day walk towards safety. So as a human rights issue, as a fellow human, that's what affected. We were gonna try and avoid that, but go ahead. <laughs> I mean, you have to ask the question, here we go. Go for it. Why? Why has this issue emerged all of a sudden as the top issue? And I think there are many analysts with many different perspectives on this. It might have something to do with experiencing kind of the post-economic boom of the end of the 90s, of things as people feel a degree of economic insecurity coupled with what has happened in terms of 9-11 and real fear generally. Um, these things can take a racialized tone. And we've seen that historically. One of the things we looked back on is kind of some of the um, immigration restrictionist legislation historically and when they've occurred and the ties to the economic boom and bust periods, and there does seem to be some correlation. Um, I'm still thinking about all that. Okay, real quick, I, I like this. I like uh, telling people about this fact. Did you know that when the Border Patrol was first established in 1924, I think it was, they were actually called the Chinese Exclusionary Force? Um, and they were there only to block Chinese people from coming in through Mexico because they were all working on the railroads. Um, back then, Mexicans could cross back and forth. Um, Aren't so we I mean, in the former Mexico? Well, yeah. Yeah, that was right after this part of the country stopped being Mexico. Um, but. We don't, have, we don't have to get into that. I think we'll take one more question, and thanks. 
Well, I'd like to thank everyone for coming out. I also want to thank Emily Taplin for all of her help putting all this together. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot.